Well, let's pray together as we return to Romans here in just a moment. Father, you are a good and gracious king, and your goodness and grace exceed the capacity of our hearts and minds to understand. Even what we've experienced of your grace, as mighty as it is, as generous and astonishing as that grace is, it still does not tell the full story of the depth of riches of grace and mercy. We pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would expand our capacity to understand and then to experience the greatness of your character, the greatness of your work, that with the Apostle Paul, with the saints who have gone before us, millions who have come into that sweet experience of all that you are, we too would be able to say, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of this God. Cause us to be in awe of you this morning. If truth be told, many of us are in awe of other circumstances or situations. Some are in awe this morning of the weakness of their bodies, the capacity uh, of their uh, resources. Some are in awe of the great difficulty that they are experiencing in a family matter this morning. Some are in awe of the political turmoil or the economic pressure that all of us are experiencing at this moment. But Lord God, you alone deserve the glory because you alone are the single greatest entity in all the universe. You alone are the weightiest being in all that is known to us. And because of that, you alone deserve our awe and worship and wonder and praise. So would you cause each of those other uh, thoughts or cares or worries um, to find their proper place in relationship to you? We are confident that as some are put into perspective, in comparison to your greatness or given over to you and entrusted to you because of your great kindness, they will fade, if not altogether vanish away because in the grand scheme of things, they are nothing, but you are everything. So great God, reveal your greatness to us today. Glorious God, reveal your glory to us. And we pray that at the center of all our meditation, all of our worship today, would be the Son of your love, the only begotten one who laid down his life, who suffered the brutality of the cross for us. So plant the cross at the center of our souls. Orient all of life to the cross. And out of that powerful work that Jesus has done for us and by the gift of the Holy Spirit, seal uh, this gospel to our hearts and transform us so that we would 
not only be the people you desire us to be, but we would be the people that this present generation needs. Fill us with your spirit. Empower us by his presence. Transform us through his touch. And we ask these things, Father. We pray these things, Lord Jesus. We plead with you, dear Holy Spirit, that all good and glory may go back to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Open your Bibles, please, to Romans 11. And we are coming to the end of chapter 11. And we're, after today, we're actually going to turn our attention uh, to a Thanksgiving theme next week. And then after Thanksgiving, we're going to turn our attention to a, a four-part Christmas series because the holidays are here. That seems unreal, doesn't it? I mean, I'm, I'm getting used to seeing November on the calendar, but somehow in my mind or in my heart, I, I actually feel like it's the end of September. Um, but here we are. And then after Christmas, we're going to take the month of January. Uh, Matt and I are going to team preach some things in December and then in, de- in January uh, that we just think will be really helpful, hopefully encouraging and inspirational and motivational for you. So a little more topical approach in January. And then I think, Lord willing, we'll come back to Romans in February. But it's going to be a little while. But this is a great place for us to to push the pause button in the series because we come to the end of chapter 11 and there's a great uh, great summit of God's truth, a climactic moment, if you will, in the great drama of this gospel that the Lord sets before us. We often use the term inspiration to describe a moment of powerful emotion or profound insight. Sometimes books and movies are described as inspirational. And in a dictionary definition kind of way, when we are using the term inspiration in that form or in that context, we simply mean uh, or are referring to the process of being mentally stimulated to do or feel something, especially to do something creative. I love the picture of this woman standing, gazing out on the ocean, I think it is. It's a large body of water. It looks fairly calm at this point, but if you've stood on a coastline in recent days and looked out across the expanse of an ocean or even a a, a large lake, you might have found some inspiration. It puts your life in perspective or it moved you deeply. But when we speak of inspiration in the biblical sense, we are actually referring to something that the Spirit of God did to create the living and active Word. The Bible that is open before you today is described by the Apostle Paul to Timothy, who pastored the church at Ephesus 2,000 years ago with these words, All Scripture is breathed out. Or we could even say, some of you maybe memorized that passage out of the King James Version a number of years ago. All Scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable, Paul said, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Peter 1.21 tells us that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
Now, I want to insert this right here because when we come to Romans 11, and I'm going to read verses 33 through 36 in just a moment, Paul is going to try to express some things that are of such magnitude in his soul that the words really seem to be inadequate. And he's actually going to use a couple of terms, and I'll point these out when we come there, that, that are exclamatory. They're words that you can read on a page, but they're more the expression of a soul that is overwhelmed, a soul that stands in awe of something, or in this case, someone. And we have words even in the English language, and one of them we use in our translation here, and and the first word we're going to encounter is the word, oh. But it's more than just O-H with an exclamation. It's something that rises from the depths of the soul. But what I don't want you to miss is that this is not simply Paul responding to truth that overwhelms him. He is actually being carried along by the Holy Spirit to express something that is of such a magnitude that every single one of us ought to pay attention and say, what is it that moved Paul, to respond in this way, to write these words, what is it even that the Holy Spirit wants to convey to us? Now, here's one other little thing by way of introduction about these particular verses we're looking at this morning, that if you were to study it out, you may even have a note if you have a study Bible with marginal notes. It may even refer to this little paragraph before us today, these four verses as a hymn. And there's good reason to think that we have in front of us the text of a first century hymn written by Paul under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. There's parallelism, and you'll see some of this in English, but, but Greek poetry, as Paul was writing here, using the Greek language to write this letter and send it off to Rome, uh, would take a little different form. And so the poetry is not in rhyme, uh, rhyming words, or even a particular meter, as we're used to in English poetry, now there are parallel thoughts. There are some terms that uh, look similar if you could go back and, and see them. So this nine-line hymn, as one author describes it, does not seek to penetrate more deeply into the mysteries of God's purpose. Paul, having caught a glimpse of the measureless, listen to this, the measureless majesty of God's mercy falls back in awe and wonder. Awe and wonder which struggles to find expression. Now my only quarrel is, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there's no struggle to put this into words, but I think the Holy Spirit leads Paul to use uh, some broad and general terms simply because the magnitude of what is trying to be put into human language runs beyond the capacity of human language. It's actually one of the reasons that gathering for worship each Lord's Day is vital. Through the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, we actually find words. And that's particularly helpful for those of us who are not poets and authors, you know, who have vocabularies of 50,000 words at our disposal through the reading of the scriptures, through the preaching and teaching of God's word, we learn the right and accurate words to use, and even those sometimes are inadequate. So let's listen to the words given to us by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul, Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth 
of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now I want you to pay attention to a couple of key words in this passage. And the first is that little exclamation, oh. I touched on that already, and we'll come to that. The second one that I want you to pay attention to is how. That word occurs twice there in that particular verse. And then we're going to come to the important word who. A rhetorical question as it's formed there uh, where Paul is pointing us uh, to someone. And then finally in verse 36, those little prepositions from and through and to him. And then finally, the word glory. Now that's where we're going to go this morning. And all of these are helpful in understanding this salvation. And these four verses in many ways are a summary response. They, they don't summarize the specific doctrine, but it's kind of a summary response of everything that's preceded it. So I'm sorry for those of you who are just joining us for the first time saying, hey, I've missed the first 11 and a half chapters of, of this preaching series. I know, but you can go back and read it. Take you less than an hour to read the first 11 chapters of Paul's letter, and you should do that. But notice, first of all, as as Paul begins to respond to this magnificent salvation, he uses the word, this exclamation, oh, with the word depth. And so I want you to see, first of all, the depth of God's salvation plan. That little exclamatory oh uh, is an emotional assertion of awe. And we ought to ask, what puts him in awe? Well, he's telling us there's something really deep here. And the word depth has to do with extreme points on a scale. There was a little video uh, floating around. I, I actually have a slide of that, but I, I nixed it from PowerPoint this morning. But it was floating around on social media. And a couple of weeks ago, I, I saw it but didn't bother to look at it. And it had to do with just a, uh, a little survey of the ocean depths. Did any of you see this thing floating around? I finally watched it over the weekend. It's about five minutes long. And it starts you out in the, you know, the shallow parts of the oceans of the earth. And, and takes you through various large, even large uh, seas, like the Caspian Sea or the Black Sea. Uh, but it ends, and some of you who have studied a little bit of the o- oceanography would know that the deepest point on planet Earth is the Mariana Trench. And if you dropped Mount Everest into the trench, it would sink to the bottom and you'd still have a, a few thousand feet uh, of, of water above it. It's 11,000 meters. And I use, you know, that form of measurement because that blows our minds, right? The metric system, we don't even comprehend that. Well, Paul also wants our minds to, to just feel the magnitude of this. He uses that tiny little word to point out the fact that there is a scale that is exceedingly great in view here. He says, oh, the depth of, and now three particular aspects. First, the riches of this salvation. God is 
deeper in riches than we can possibly fathom. And he is speaking in context, especially of God's kindness, as it has been expressed in the blessing he brings on undeserving sinners, as one author writes. And just think back through a few key passages in Romans where we have encountered the word riches. Back in chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Some of you know that God was deeply patient with you. You rebelled and ran from him and and shook your fist in his face for many years before he arrested your attention and brought you to that place of repentance and faith. Or in chapter 9, verse 23, we heard Paul write of God's purpose of making known the riches of his glory on vessels of mercy. Or chapter 10, verse 12, bestowing his riches on all who believe. And then he goes on to explain it is the richness of his salvation that no one deserved, no one earned by their obedience, no one one garnered his attention because they were particularly zealous or valuable to the kingdom. It was all of mercy. And so Paul is saying, oh, the depth of the riches of his salvation. He also speaks of the deep wisdom of his salvation. Generally speaking, wisdom has to do with the capacity to understand and as a result to act in a way that would be described as wise. But in its context, what Paul is speaking of is God's wisdom that moved from long ago, the secret counsels of eternity to plan out this redemption, the wisdom that purposed to send the eternal Son of God into the world as a baby. We're on the threshold of another Advent season celebrating the miraculous incarnation. The God of eternity becomes human flesh, what we are. The wisdom that Purpose not only to send the eternal Son of God into the world as a baby, but to grow up under the care of a carpenter and a young mother named Mary. The wisdom that sent this perfect Son to Calvary's cross in place of the sinners who deserve that condemnation and wrath. Oh, the depth of the wisdom that forgives the guilty, that pardons the sinful, that justifies the unrighteous, all for the sake of the Son. What wisdom is this? The wisdom that purpose to save people from every tribe and language and family and nation. If you do a little comparative reading in 1 Corinthians, Paul actually goes into more specific explanation of of God's wisdom, and he makes a, a really interesting point in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22 and following, that the Jews of his days were demanding signs. They wanted the miraculous powers to prove that God had, in fact, sent Jesus, that he was their Messiah. And even Jesus said in the days of his earthly ministry that these religious people were always looking for a sign. And then Paul also says the Greeks seek wisdom. They were always interested in the latest philosopher, and it was fairly trendy you know, to hear some, some new uh, presentation of wisdom, some new worldview, some new philosophy of life, some new approach to what we know. But listen to what he said next. But we, that is the followers of Jesus, we preach Christ crucified. Our message is not simply that there is a God who's come in flesh, but that there is a God come in flesh who was 
crucified. The cross is at the center of Paul's message and ours. And then he says it's a stumbling block to Jews. Why? They're looking for a sign of a different kind. A crucified Messiah is not what they were looking for, so it's a stumbling block to them, and it's foolishness to Gentiles. Well, that just doesn't seem to be as wise uh, uh, an approach to life as you know, Socrates or Plato or Aristotle or any of the other sophists of their day. It, it seems absolutely ridiculous, if not absurd, to preach about a crucified man. But then Paul goes on to say in verse 24, but to those who are called, that is called by God, into the salvation, and, and that includes both Jews and Greeks, listen to this, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see, wisdom is not just a a body of knowledge that could be used in a particular way or, or means. It's not just some understanding of a way of life. But when God speaks of wisdom and then reveals it to us, it's all located in a person. Christ is God's wisdom. And I think that's partly what's in view in in Paul's writing to the Romans. Oh, the depths of this wisdom, it runs far beyond what any human being might manufacture what wisdom it is that results in the salvation of sinners. But then he talks about the deep knowledge of God's salvation plan. Now, again, knowledge generally refers to things we know. But if you think back through the context of how Paul has been writing up to this point about God's knowledge for us, and I'll take you back to chapter 8 specifically in verses 28 and 29, where Paul said specifically that those God foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And just a real quick review, that foreknowledge, as we explored it several weeks back, has to do with God's special and personal knowledge of individuals like you and me. So the foreknowing that Paul wrote of in Romans 8, 28 actually moves God to work in a particular way, predestining us to be conformed to the image of his son. It moves him to issue a call or divine summons to people like you and me who have no right to be in relationship with him, yet he calls us into personal relationship with him that we might experience this intimate relationship. It's that knowledge that moves him to pursue rebels destined for wrath and judgment and justify them by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is is a relationship that's in view here when Paul writes of this knowledge of God because he does know you and he wants to know you. Most of you I know, but only Kristen and I are in a marriage relationship, which means that we have Uh, the most personal, intimate, exclusive knowledge one of another. It's the accumulation of a life lived together. And the deep knowledge that Paul is referring to is God's knowledge of us so personally, so intimately, moving and working through that knowledge to bring us into an eternal relationship with him. What knowledge is this? Oh, the depths of the knowledge of God's salvation plan. There's a second response of Paul to all of this truth, and we might describe it with the word wonder. It is the wonder of God's ways, and these are the hows that I 
uh, drew that little orange box around earlier. So look again at the text because moving now to the end of verse 33, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Unsearchable judgments has reference to those, those decisions, not, you shouldn't think of legal judgments like a judge who, who renders uh, a sentence in a court of law. This is a little broader than that. It has to do with the decisions that God has made. Paul says they are unsearchable. That is impossible to understand. You can know some things about them, but you will never be able to explore every corner of them. You'll never be able to, to summarize them uh, with, with your own efforts where you say, I got it. Job had a taste of this. He wrote in verses 7 through 10, I'll only put verse 7 on the screen there for you. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? He goes on to write, it is higher than heaven. What can you do? Some of you from the time you were little always had to find the fence, the border, the limit. And if your parents said, don't go out of the yard, you know, the, the best obedience you could offer was to go right up to the edge. And in your heart, you wanted to go way beyond the edge. There's a great big world out there that you wanted to explore, and it just kind of grated on your soul, and it was a happy day when you were independent enough to say, no more fences, no more barriers, no more borders around me. I can go do what I want, go where I want. You could spend eternity exploring the decisions, the judgments of God, and you would never come to the end of it. Even if you sat in his classroom and he explained to you, lecture one, and he explained this particular judgment of mine and took you to a certain point, you'd have to keep coming back because it would always go beyond where you were before. That's what unsearchable means. It doesn't mean that it's off limits, that you've got to stay in the house, so to speak, that you can't even go into the yard of his judgments and explore. It just means if you go out into the yard, it's going to keep going mile after mile after mile. In Job, we go on to read, deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes through and imprisons and summons the court, who can turn him back? If God just decides he's going to do something, you and I aren't going to stop it. Unsearchable judgments. Paul then writes that his ways are inscrutable. It's a similar idea to unsearchable. It just means impossible to be traced out. In his ways, that simply refers to the course of conduct. David wrote of this in Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Yeah, it's inscrutable. I love the words of Jerry Bridges. We may know something about God's love, power, wisdom, and so forth, but we can never know his love completely 
or exhaustively. We can never know his power exhaustively. We can never know his wisdom exhaustively and so forth. In order to know any single thing about God exhaustively, we would have to know it as he himself knows it. That is, we would have to know it in its relationship to everything else about God and its relationship to everything else about creation throughout all eternity. We can only exclaim with David, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. And it's not simply that God's decisions to create the universe as it truly is exceeds our capacity to know and understand it all, but rather that God's decisions in ways that lead us to the cross of Calvary and the deadly wounds inflicted upon his only begotten son could accomplish our salvation. That's knowledge that exceeds the boundaries of our understanding. Years ago, I, I read just a little paragraph, and it, it's famous. You could Google this and, and find it. I did it yesterday as I, uh, as I couldn't remember where I'd written it down. You know, in the old days, we used to make paper files and, and have file cabinets and all kinds of things, and I knew that it would be much faster just to Google $3 worth of God. And I want to read this little paragraph because I think it's fitting how many of us are like the average man that Wilbur Reese once wrote about. I'd like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a black man or pick beets with a migrant. I want ecstasy not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I'd like to buy $3 worth of God, please. There are a lot of people in this world who want $3 worth of God. And we know that because it actually makes some people angry and frustrated that they can't know all there is to know about God, that even the words unsearchable or inscrutable actually seem unreasonable to them. How could you put your faith in a God that runs way beyond your capacity to understand him? How could you put your faith in a God that says to you and just expects you to believe, as Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, I created all that is. How could you put your faith in a God that laid out some kind of crazy plan where he sends his son, the incarnate God, born to a virgin Mary and then would live and serve and preach and teach and perform miracles and then die a criminal's death on a cross. What kind of madness is that? Well, if you categorize it as madness, then maybe you don't want anything more than $3 worth of God in a paper bag. But if you're willing to humble yourself under this massive gospel story and say, God's judgments are unsearchable and his ways inscrutable. And if you back up from that and say, oh, the depth of the riches and knowledge and wisdom of God, then this God has far more for you than you could ever fathom and he will never disappoint you in your unending quest to know him. I don't want a God I can fit in a sack. I want a God who swallows my little insignificant existence into the immensity of his being, of his universe. Look at verse 34. I think there's another word we can use, and that is the word awe. Now, Paul, as he's been doing all through the letter, goes back and quotes another Old Testament passage, another Isaiah passage. 
I think he quotes Isaiah 19 times in this letter to Romans. I need to go back and look at that. I'm just kind of pulling that out. But we've encountered multiple quotations. Well, here's another one. Who has known the mind of the Lord? We, we believe he's quoting Isaiah 40, verses 13 through 14. Who's been his counselor? I mean, really, did, did, did God ever need advice? Has there ever been a moment where God said, you know, I, I, I need a sounding board. Hire me a consultant. Who counsels God? Well, that's the whole point of this. There's, there's no one who counsels or who gives, and the text actually le- reads, who has given to him that he might be repaid. The, the point here is that we are, I, I love the way one author described it, we are neither God's counselors nor his creditors. That's why as we were looking at Isaiah 40 a little earlier, it's so important for us to listen to the words of God himself as he goes on in Isaiah 40 verse 25 to say, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Or in Isaiah 46 verse 5, to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? God doesn't even have a close rival. Isaiah 46 verses 9 and 10, he actually says in very simple, direct terms, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. That's reality that puts us in awe. The answer to these questions is emphatically no one knows the mind of God. No one counsels God. There is no one who gives something to him that makes him indebted to them. What an awesome God he is. Verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. John Stott writes that these three prepositions indicate that God is the creator, sustainer, and heir of everything. He is its source, its means, and goal. He is the alpha and the omega. That's the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Most of you know that. Alpha, is, it's comparable to our A. And omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. So to put it in English terms, he's the A and the Z and everything in between. Every aspect of this is awe-inspiring, wonder-producing. This work of salvation is all His. Salvation originates in Him, it's produced through Him, and it's completed in Him. It goes back to Him. You and I take no credit, and so that leads us then to the, the, the ultimate expression of glory. Oops, forgot I had this little slide in there. We're like little children trying to put an alphabet puzzle together. And we sometimes get caught up in thinking that we're really smart and really impressive because we can put all 26 letters, you know, in their proper order. And, and we miss the fact that we didn't make up the alphabet and, and we didn't, you know, create or paint the pieces of this puzzle. We didn't create the world that we are sitting on or the gravity that keeps us attached to the world that we're living our lives on. We're, we're so often like little kids who just think, I am the center of the world. And this puzzle is all the knowledge anyone could ever want or need. It's laughable, isn't it? And the cute picture takes a little bit of the edge <laughs> off of that illustration, but how offensive it must be to God when little people like us try to steal his glory or excuse him to the corner of the room. 
No, look at where Paul goes, because the glory of God's salvation plan is simply this, to him be all the glory. Glory is a word that refers to a state of high honor, and it all goes to him. Not a 99% share, and we get a little 1%. No, it all goes to him. And, and so at the, in, in the last verse of this hymn that Paul is writing, he even adds his amen. Let it be everything I've said, I believe, I affirm, I confess as, as being true, and here's my amen. And I think how often we want to take the glory for what God has done. Again, John Stott goes on to write, it is because all things are from, through, and to God that the glory must be his alone. This is why human pride is so offensive. Pride is behaving as if we were God Almighty, strutting around the earth as if we owned the place, repudiating our due dependence on God, pretending instead that all things depend on us, and thus arrogating to ourselves the glory which belongs to God alone. It's all his. Do you live with that awareness? Do you rise from your sleep each morning with an awareness that God has, in his kindness and in his power, raised you from a coma? Because sleep is that, isn't it? My heart's still beating. I'm still breathing. Wow, praise God, the giver of life. Or do you rise and say, well, another day, what am I gonna do? What am I gonna accomplish? Wonder who's going to be impressed with me today. Oh, what a small existence. To him be glory forever. Amen.